Welcome to Resistance Roundtable, broadcast on WPKN the second Saturday of each month, where we engage in conversation about local and nationwide organizing for a more just and democratic America during this pivotal and dangerous moment in our nation's and world's history. Hosting today's show is Ruthie M. Baumgartner, who's a longtime instructor in literature and writing at Central Connecticut State University, member of the Executive Committee of the Connecticut Conference of the American Association of University Professors. Ruth also serves as a member of the Board of Directors and a theatrical director herself with the Westport Community Theater. Ruth Ann is here with us in the studio again this week, the second time in more than 14, 15 months. Right, Ruth? Very, very exciting, too. <laughs> yes, it is. Uh, joining us by phone today is Richard Hill, host of WPKN Show's First Tuesday, Rainy Day Radio, and Organic Farm Stand. And, of course, uh, Richard is also rotating host of Mike Check. Rich- Richard himself is a musician, teacher, and mentor with Youth Radio Connecticut. I'm Scott Harris, host of WPKN's weekly public affairs program, Counterpoint, that airs Mondays between 8 and 10 p.m., and executive producer of the syndicated Between the Lines radio news magazine, which both Ruth Ann and Richard are contributors. In, uh, in just a moment, we're going to be speaking with Luke Savage, a staff writer with Jacobin Magazine. We'll be uh, talking about the dire threat to democracy and the frustrating complacency of many Democrats uh, but first of all, I just want to say hello to Richard and to uh, you, Ruth. Richard, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Good. I appreciate uh, the opportunity to remotely participate. Yeah, good to hear your voice, even remotely. And Ruth Ann, how are you doing? Um, can you hear me through your earphones? Yes. Okay, I'm doing fine then. Good, good to hear it. Well, on the line right now with us to uh, kick off this program, and we're getting a, a little bit of a late start due to some technical problems here at the station, uh, which is not a rarity, unfortunately. But Luke Savage, who's on the line, as I said, is a staff writer with Jacobin Magazine and also writes for Current Affairs, The Atlantic, The Guardian, New Statesman, among other publications. And uh, we'll hear a little bit more from Luke before we say goodbye this morning about a new book he's got forthcoming from OR Books. Uh, Luke's recent articles include If Democracy is Dying, Why Are Democrats So Complacent?, published in The Atlantic, and Ending the Filibuster is about defending democracy that uh, he he recently wrote in uh, Jacobin magazine. Luke, great to have you on the air this morning with us. Uh, Thanks for making time for us. Thanks so much for having me back. It's great to be here. So, Luke, uh, your article, If Democracy is Dying, Why Are Democrats So Complacent?, got, got a bit of attention because I think it struck a chord uh, with many people across the country. Your point being that uh, Democratic Party leadership in the House and Senate and President Biden say that Republican voter suppression legislation proposed in 47 states in efforts uh, to replace nonpartisan election officials in order to overturn the people's will in future elections represents an existential threat to democracy. And I think many people agree with that. But uh, again, as you point out in this article, many observers across the country conclude that congressional Democrats and Joe Biden's actions thus far aren't at all consistent with the threat they warn us could destroy representative democracy. Tell us uh, some of your thoughts about um, uh, the, the focus of this article. Yeah, so, I mean, the, uh, you know, 
senior Democrats, and you know, it's not just the kind of progressive wing or, or left wing lawmakers who are saying this. Senior Democrats who are not, you know, firebrands like uh, Chuck Schumer, Biden himself, and others, um, you know, have been saying a lot, um, as you mentioned, about these Republican voter suppression efforts, and um, you know, they've been speaking about them in pretty dire terms, and, and frankly, they're not wrong. Um, I don't have the the latest figures in front of me, but as of March 24th, I'm not sure if they've updated them since then, but um, researchers over at the Brennan Center, which they've been logging um, the state-level bills uh, aimed at voter suppression, and, and as of uh, March the 24th, they've logged uh, 641 of those bills, uh, bills that contain provisions that, is, that restrict voting. And that was a 43% increase um, in, in, just a, in just a month. Um, so this, is, uh, this kind of legislation has really spiked since January 1st. Um, and you have kind of two, two types of bills. You have ones that you know, have expanded ID requirements, limit mail-in ball- balloting, that kind of stuff, the more familiar stuff. And then you also had... Uh, you also have um, ones that make it easier to overturn uh, the results of elections. So it hasn't passed, but there's one, for example, in Arizona that would basically make it so that um, the legislature, uh, controlled by Republicans, could could uh, overturn the uh, overturn the state's uh, election results by essentially taking the power away from the Secretary of State. Um, so th- this is a, a real uh, a real effort um, that has spiked over the past few months, um, you know, in the final days of the Trump presidency um, and uh, and into into the Biden presidency. Um, and the, the means to deal with this are, uh, are really at the Democrats' disposal in, in the form of two bills, um, uh, two voting rights bills, but one in particular, HR one, uh, now S one for the for the People Act, um, and uh, you know this would, uh, you know, basically it would it would establish national automatic voter registration, you know, independent commissions for House seats, so um, that the borders would be drawn by an independent commission, so you wouldn't get these kind of wonkily shaped districts, um, expanded mail-in voting. There's all kinds of stuff. There are restrictions on dark money, um, you know, new measures for transparency around that stuff. Um, so, uh, you know, it, it, this, would, this would have a pretty profound effect on American elections, and it would, it would um, you know, it would, it would be a significant countermeasure to what Republicans are doing in quite a concerted way at the state level. But, of course, um, you know, as things stand, uh, this bill is, is going to die in the United States Senate, um, and that's because of the filibuster and the uh, you know 60 vote threshold and the kind of undemocratic character um, of that chamber uh, more generally and and um, I think much much the same can be said about other parts of the Biden uh, agenda the democratic agenda as well um, and so I was interested in exploring uh, you know given what Democrats are saying about this what are they actually doing about it Thank you for that. And just to follow up before we open up to the panel, the, the, the response of the Democratic leadership, especially Chuck Schumer in the Senate, is, you know, this filibuster is the major obstacle to passing on this legislation. But it doesn't appear like the, the, the Democrats, uh, at least the national Democrats, are um, taking this to the people. It doesn't appear that their hair is on fire, that they're really making the case that this is an emergency. 
uh, as you said in the article, there's a certain degree of complacency here that doesn't match the threat that they warn us against. Tell us what more they could do than what they're doing now. Yeah, well, I mean, I think that, uh, you know, I think it's, it's worth saying that, uh, you know, this is not exactly easy. Um, you know, it's not, it, there's not a magic wand that can suddenly be waved and, um, you know, and then, and then uh, the, this agenda passes and the filibuster goes away. Um, the problem is that if you're going to say that there's a, an existential threat to American democracy, you really have to, you know, it's, it, it then falls upon you to use absolutely every tool at your disposal. Um, and I suppose in the weeks since I wrote this piece uh, in The Atlantic, there's been uh, a, a bit, you know, there's been more of a focus on Joe Manchin, um, you know, who's an opponent of, the, of ending the filibuster and, and on uh, uh, Kristen Cinema as well. Um, but I don't know. I, I, you know, the, the the president and also you know Chuck Schumer, the Senate Majority Leader, have you know tremendous uh, options for disciplining these senators. For one thing, I mean, uh, Manchin could have his committee seats revoked. He could be, you know, denied party funds. I've heard rumors that he wants to run for governor. So the Democratic Party, he's going to need their help for that. Um, you know. Um, uh, so, I mean, there are, there are tons of options like that. I mean, there are also carrot options as well. Um, you know, it's, uh, you know, see, you know, the U.S. Congress hands out needless, you know, earmarks for, you know, military bases and things like that all the time to get people to vote a certain way. So, um, you know, perhaps just for once that kind of thing could be done uh, in the interest of uh, voting rights and, um, and ending the filibuster, which even... Even outside of this question of um, of voting rights is is really an indefensible institution anyway, and, and should really should really go. Richard or Ruth Ann, do you have a comment or question on on this hot topic? Well, uh, my concern uh, on this, particularly on this topic, is that in the name of getting along and being bipartisan and all those nice fuzzy concepts that we have when we picture. I, uh, the, the flag waving over the happy United States, all those uh, concepts in practice, particularly in practice by the party that has made uh, cynical manipulation of the law uh, its specialty, uh, really looks to me like opening the door to one-party rule, the minority rule, uh, which the Republicans are. And every time they talk about the, the, the desires of the minority and coming to a compromise with, with the Republican point of view, they're talking about absolutely a numerical minority in the country. And when you look at the polling of opinions, a minority in the opinion polling. So uh, always trying to accommodate that point of view, I think, is is a risky policy in general. In the name of happiness, let's give up happiness. That's the end of my question. I hope it came to a point. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I, I, I completely agree with that. Um, it's, you know, the, the whole, I mean, the whole concept of, of minority rights, um, you know, Manchin himself raised that in an op-ed um, in the Washington Post, where he was defending uh, the filibuster, and yeah, minority rights, like bipartisanship, you know, it's one of those, it's one of those words or phrases that's been uh, devised to make the indefensible sound a little more uh, defensible. But I mean, it, you know, it, it's really only applicable a phrase like minority rights if the minority we're talking about is, you know, an affluent conservative and. You know, often also white and southern one. I mean, the uh, the Republican Party is 
tremendously powerful politically, but that's you know largely a function of uh, I mean they get millions fewer votes even in even in sometimes have off off years in in midterms they get sometimes millions of fewer votes than the Democrats and it's because of institutions uh, you know like the filibuster like the design of the Senate which is um, you know incredibly anti-majoritarian as a as an institution. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's, it's because of those things that the Republican Party often appears to be this, you know, uh, kind of impregnable force. But it's, uh, you know, it really, it really shouldn't be. Um, and, uh, you know, the the uh, the Democratic Party, you know, it seems to me is at, at this moment. I mean, just you know, for I I come from the left, so of course I want them to pass voting rights and the you know the Pro Act and and um, fifteen dollar minimum wage and all this stuff. But it seems to me I. Just on the basis of sheer kind of political calculation, um, if they're not willing to get, you know, to do everything in their power to get rid of the filibuster and pass this agenda uh, now ahead of the next, uh, you know, ahead of the 2022 midterms, um, you know, I mean, the the political consequences for them, the electoral consequences are going to be uh, are going to be quite severe um, for not passing that agenda and not. Uh, doing more to roll back this attack on on voting rights, which I think you're you're absolutely right is is an attempt to you know enshrine uh, uh, minority rule. And we have examples of really dangerous minority rule. South Africa didn't settle things by everybody singing um, <laughs> some famous campsite song. Uh, it was very hard work for them to come to any kind of uh, legitimate. Uh, government in South Africa, but first they went through violence, and uh, that's what's happened in a lot of uh, countries over history that uh, ruled by violence because they were ruling from the minority. I would hate to see us go down that road, but I think January 6th was kind of a preview of what violence would look like here. It's very, it's very strange because, um, I mean, this is another thing where there's a, a tremendous inconsistency and incongruency between um, the kinds of things that Democrats, even kind of centrist ones, you know, senior senior Democrats, uh, they say, um, and the, I mean, the sort of broader legislative strategy that they've undertaken. I mean, if you watch, uh, I mean, I, I, as a rule, tend to uh, not do this too much, but, you know, watch kind of liberal, uh, you know, cable shows and, and things like that. Um, you know, you see a, a, an overriding focus on January 6th, and you see a lot of emphasis on the anti-democratic um, and, you know, in some cases, violent character of the, you know, Ameri- of America's right wing and, and its, you know, political uh, voice, the Republican Party. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, you have Democratic lawmakers, I mean, I guess the talks fell apart a few days ago, but, you know, saying uh, that they want to, you know, achieve, you know, they want Republican votes for budgets and, um, you know, the, the infrastructure bill and, and, and things like that. And it strikes me that this, these are not a particularly consistent position. Uh, you, you know, you, uh, if, if something, if, if the other political party is a threat to the republic itself, you probably shouldn't be seeking their their votes. Um, and, uh, you know, this, this speaks to the whole um, kind of canard of bipartisanship and what it, what it what it's actually uh, referring to, which is uh, which is something other than just you know people cooperating and getting along. Richard, do you have a uh, a comment or question for Luke? Luke, I wanted to ask you, given that the filibuster is the sticking point 
And without eliminating it or modifying it, there, there doesn't seem to be any pathway to moving this uh, the Biden agenda toward its progressive purported progressive goals. Can you talk a little bit technically about what the mechanisms the Democrats could employ to, if not completely overturn the filibuster, then modify it, quote unquote, that we've heard a little bit about that would make it practically difficult, if not impossible, and at least very embarrassing for the Republicans to exercise it? Yeah. So, I mean, there is, you know, there is this possible compromise that some people have talked about uh, involving the, the, the talking filibuster. Um, so this is kind of, uh, I actually haven't seen the movie, but uh, I gather in Mr. Smith goes to Washington. There's a scene where Jimmy Stewart is, is using the talking filibuster or something oh, yes. uh, or sees it being used. So this is where, you know, you have to you know, you actually, to filibuster actually means, you know, standing there and reading from the phone book or something. You know, you, you have to hold the floor and it makes it, I mean, right, right now the filibuster is, is as, far, as far as I can see, it's, it's as much a kind of an abstract threat. It's the fact that you know it could, you know, it could be used. So things don't, things don't even come to the floor. They don't, you know, they don't come to a, a vote. That's a possible compromise. I'm not exactly sure of the mechanics, but there's, uh, you know, there have been some discussions of um, striking some kind of deal whereby the filibuster would be, um, you know, eliminated temporarily to pass certain items um, and then and then perhaps restored. Although, again, I'll just reiterate, I don't think it's a defensible institution at all. The, the, um, the, the defenses of it really don't uh, add up. For for budget uh, for budgets, you know, there's always the possibility of reconciliation um, and using uh, using that process. And um, you know, some some Democrats I think have been uh, you know keen to do that. You know, uh, Bernie Sanders, I suppose, technically not a Democrat, but he's uh, he's been pretty bullish on that. Um, but uh, I don't know. The one one experience that makes me quite anxious about all this was the experience a few months ago with the. $15 minimum wage, where they had a an opportunity um, to put that in. I guess it was the first stage of it was the first Biden budget, um, the first infrastructure bill, and then this uh, you know unelected figure who no one had ever heard of, the Senate parliamentarian, said, "Well, actually, I don't think that that mm. I don't think that that counts. It shouldn't be part of a shouldn't be part of a bill like this." And the Democrats were entirely within their power to overrule. Um, the Senate parliamentarian. It is a, a fairly recent convention, I believe about 20 years old, um, and, and, they, and they chose not to. Um, and so that kind of deference to these institutional conventions, even when there's no, um, there's really no political or moral defense of them, um, that makes me very anxious um, about, about the filibuster, which is an, a harder obstacle to overcome than the Senate parliamentarian. We're speaking with Luke Savage, he's staff writer with Jacobin Magazine, and we're talking about uh, several of his articles. Uh, if Democracy is Dying, Why Are Democrats So Complacent, published in The Atlantic recently. And uh, Luke, I wanted to make this point, and that's, uh, I think, the age-old advice from organizers, political organizers, don't invest your hope in politicians that there are lessons from the civil rights movement that 
militant protests, civil disobedience, that whole history that we've known from um, uh, progressive movements here in the United States and around the world, they have often succeeded. And isn't it time that the forces, the progressive forces in this country, uh, begin a strategy of intense militant pressure on politicians, whether they be Democrats or Republicans, but to push and demand change. And just to paraphrase uh, Frederick Douglass, didn't he? And I think it still holds today. He said, uh, "Power concedes nothing without a demand. It never did, and it never will." Uh, your thoughts? I think that's absolutely. Uh, I think that's absolutely right. And and um, you know, I think. I, you know, we're already we already, uh, you know, in, in some ways have seen the fruits of, of those kinds of efforts. I mean, um, the, uh, you know, Joe Manchin, of all people, has come out in support of the PRO Act, which is this hugely transformative labor bill. And that was after a massive uh, effort by, um, you know, various uh, various groups, various unions, the Democratic Socialists of America ran a huge campaign, I think, targeting him specifically. Um, that's absolutely right. I think. Uh, the uh, I think there's a, an assumption that a, a lot of um, you know I, I'm seeing a lot of frustration and I saw a lot of frustration in, in the wake of, of, of this piece and its and you know its publication from kind of rank and file liberals people who are not exactly on the left they're they're frustrated with the situation but I think they sort of take it as axiomatic that the Democratic Party wants very badly to pass this agenda and it's just being thwarted by these you know kind of um, you know, impregnable barriers. I think that um, in the spirit of that kind of uh, militancy that you mentioned, you know, people should actually assume the opposite. There should be an assumption that, um, which is, I think it's usually the right one, that, you know, sure, while there may be, there may be some Democrats in the House and in the Senate who want to pass this legislation, the, the consensus in the Democratic Party um you know, really fronts for interest much of the time that, you know, do not want to see an agenda like this passed. And so something like the filibuster actually is pretty convenient for them. It gives mm -hmm. them um, the means to align themselves with these particular items while uh, knowing that they are probably not ever going to become, uh, you know, law. And that allows them to kind of wink at both the popular part of their coalition, which wants these things to become law, um, and uh, and also the you know corporate and, and sort of big donor part of their coalition, which uh, manifestly doesn't. So, in that spirit, you know, in that spirit of militancy, I think uh, I think that's the premise that everybody should um, should be operating from. It's because it's true. Power concedes uh, nothing without a demand, um, and so people shouldn't be asking uh, Democrats about this stuff. They should be demanding. Yeah, Franklin Delano Roosevelt famously said uh, to people who are all on board his agenda. I said, get out in the streets and make me do it. Mm -hmm. And uh, mm -hmm. maybe we're at that moment where that has to happen. Are there any signs that, you know, we, we hear a lot about the progressive movement in this country being stronger than it has been in many decades. Is there any, is there any hope? Is there any sign that uh, left movements in this country are capable and uh, uh, are poised to, to begin a, a pressure of maximum uh, um, or a campaign of maxim maximum pressure? Well, I have to say one thing that's actually encouraged me quite a bit. Um, I mean, I suppose, you know, this is, uh, I'm using, this is using kind of politicians as a reference point. So um, it's maybe not entirely in the sphere of your question, but I think that, um, 
you know, I'm very encouraged to see, uh, you know, uh, House members like Jamal Bowman and, and uh, AOC and, and others who are, who are indicating very strongly they are not going to support um, Biden's infrastructure bill if it makes too many concessions. I, um, you know, uh, there's talk about some of the climate provisions being stripped and things like that. Um, and, uh, you know, the Democrats have only a small majority in the House. Um, and these are, you know, these are figures who were, by and large, elected by movements. They were elected by popular groups. They took a very unlikely route to the United States Congress, um, which one that didn't run through, um, you know, where you don't take a tithe from, you know, Amazon and, and Google and Facebook and, and Lockheed Martin, but, you know, you run... Um, you know, you run as people's candidates and you run on a popular agenda. So now that those um, now that there are some lawmakers elected like that, um, you're seeing that they are actually able to, uh, on behalf of their constituency, uh, their constituents and also on behalf of lots of other constituents uh, with corporate representatives, they're able to um, apply real pressure. Um, I think that's quite distinct from. Uh, 2009, when the, you know the last time there was a, a new Democratic president and a new administration, um, when there was just such a, there was just a, a much more of a culture of deference to the White House, and um, you did not see sitting Democratic lawmakers, um, certainly not on the left anyway, maybe on the right, um, you didn't see them criticizing. Uh, the White House. If you heard about it, uh, you know dissent, uh, you'd be hearing about it from. Uh, you know, blue dog Democrats, conservative Democrats. Um, so to me, the presence of these lawmakers is, um, and their kind of willingness to speak this way and, and, and position this, themselves this way, um, it is evidence that there has been a, a very real shift. Um, I think there is less complacency um, uh, than there was, you know, in, in 2009. Um, I think the challenge is that so much of the appeal of, of Joe Biden as a as a political figure, you know, rested on a, a kind of a, an implicit or even in some ways an explicit promise to make politics go away after Donald Trump. So I think these are the two kind of um, these 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 two forces are sort of at odds right now. You have you know a, a desire for you know to some extent understandable people just want to kind of switch off. Then you also have this very urgent need for. Um, a more militant, uh, progressive politics, and uh, um, I'm, you know, hopefully it's the uh, hopefully it's the latter that uh, that prevails and and becomes the loudest voice in the room. Richard, do you have any any thoughts here as we near the end of uh, our discussion? Yeah, thanks, Luke and Scott and Ruthann. I just wanted to um, follow up on that, Luke, by pointing out that among uh, the progressive promises Biden made. He has already uh, stripped away so many of the progressive parts of them, like, for example, the minimum wage, the student loan issue, which has gone from, I guess, $50,000 down to, I think, zero, the $300 weekly unemployment benefits, Mm -hmm. uh, overturning Trump's tax cut to the super rich. It seems that the Democratic leadership is sort of bargaining against itself as it seeks some kind of bipartisan basis for passing hollowed out so-called progressive legislation. And the longer the fruitless effort to achieve bipartisan goes on, the more 
pro-worker elements in the agenda are stripped away. So I'm wondering what you think. Is Biden heading back to where he has always been most comfortable uh, and uh, committed, which is aligned with Wall Street and corporate hegemony? Or might he bounce off the ropes, like in a rope-a-dope fashion, and begin to play legislative hardball as the end appears to be nigh here, go after the parliamentarian, use reconciliation, a fight to the death on the filibuster. I'm just wondering, what is Biden up to here? Well, I think I think you're right about Biden's kind of core instincts. I mean, I think, you know, there's been a there's been a narrative that's been pretty ubiquitous in the press since really since not just since Biden won in November, but but since he won the Democratic primaries, really, this there's been this sort of story about, um, you know, this isn't your granddad's Joe Biden or something like that. You know, he's he's pursuing this big, you know, uh, Rooseveltian agenda. I've always been skeptical of that um, for various reasons. But I think, you know, Biden's Biden's history and, you know, and, and um, the fact that we we've actually, you know, he's been vice president, he's been a U.S. senator for a long time. Um, you know, I think those things tell us quite a lot about where someone's instincts lie. And I think with the, uh, you know, these, these recent infrastructure talks where the White House needlessly wasted time seeking out Republican votes um, for this, for this uh, you know, for this budget bill, um, I think that's pretty instructive. Um, you know, will, uh, will, will he bounce back? I mean, I, I'm not sure, uh, you know, he'll bounce back by virtue of kind of his own instincts. I mean, I think that if there is sufficient pressure um, from, you know, the small number of uh, left-wing progressive lawmakers, if there's significant pressure from popular constituencies, um, you know, within the Democratic coalition outside of it, um, you know, then it may be possible to, to force some kind of a, a change in direction. Um, you know, uh, but, uh, you know, Biden himself is, I don't think is going to kind of, um, you know, fumble his way back to some sort of, uh, you know, smarter or more constructive posture here. I mean, I think that when, uh, you know, when we're told there's this, you know, big FDR-like uh, agenda in action and, and a few months into the presidency, Biden tries to do exactly what Obama did, um, you know, and, and seek Republican votes um, for legislation. And then that comes up short. I mean, that really is just that really is just history uh, repeating itself. You know, Luke, thank you so much for uh, uh, sharing your thoughts and analysis of the current crisis with with us, the panel and our audience today. Uh, before you go, I did want to ask you about uh, a forthcoming book. You've got uh, being published by OR Books. Tell us about it briefly, if you would. Sure, thank you. Yeah, so, um, I mean, I, I don't have a, we don't have a publication date for it yet, but it's going to be, um, you know, a collection of, uh, of, of essays, uh, some of them original, um, of, uh, you know, that I've kind of written over the past few years, mostly about American politics, though not exclusively. Um, you know, it'll deal with actually some of the things that we've talked about today, perhaps taken in a longer view, um, and uh, it'll have, uh, you know, a lot of amusing portraits of uh, liberal politicians, many of which I wrote during the Democratic primaries last year. So there'll be more on, on that uh, kind of later this summer, but that's the, uh, that's the general idea. 
Well, thanks so much for uh, being here again, and uh, we'll look forward to our next conversation. Have you back to talk about the book for sure. One, one of us will. So we'll a, do that. A real pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. Take care, Luke. Bye-bye. Bye. That's uh, Luke Savage, a staff writer with Jacobin Magazine. And uh, the article we were talking about is titled, If Democracy is Dying, Why Are Democrats So Complacent?, published in The Atlantic Magazine. So uh, we have some time for a discussion, and I think, Ruth, tag your it. Okay, good. Um, I have a lot of lovely text here, but I think I'm going to try to compress it. And if I become my usual incoherent self, I apologize, because I'm better when I'm reading type. Um, I was going to be talking today about three articles and three issues that uh, I read in the last few days. And this is partly because this is June, and June is the month of Juneteenth. And if we just say, oh, good, let's have a picnic and go away from that, we're not uh, uh, doing with Juneteenth what it's what the celebrations and the observations are meant to do. So I'm going to recommend three articles and uh, briefly summarize why I think they go together. Uh, the first article is in the June New Yorker. It's an article called What Do Conservatives Fear About Critical Race Theory by Benjamin Wallace Wells. In that article, he explores the fact that in the Texas legislature's bill, Texas HB 3979, Republicans seem willing to acknowledge systemic racism, but resistant to the idea of talking about it with children. What the bill does essentially is forbid the teaching of the 1619 Project or similar uh, materials that would make children feel uncomfortable, uh, especially white students. Uh, they don't want to feel racist. Uh, conservatives don't want to feel isolated in their views. And Studying the uh, the uh, materials in the 1619 Project, for example, makes children uncomfortable. And so this bill is going to protect them from that. Uh, the uh, legislators are quick to point out that they are not racist, and they do believe that uh, racism and, and slavery have to be taught, but not, not this way. Um, a second event happening... It's not happening anymore, but it was scheduled for the 19th of June in North Carolina um, at an antebellum estate called the Latta Plantation. They were going to have a big festival the 19th of June commemorating white Southerners who lost their property because of black emancipation and the Civil War. They were going to have reenactors, uh, the stories of former bondsmen. Yes, they would acknowledge that's the term they used, but also um, the, the plantation owners who lost their property and overseers who lost their jobs, um, and uh, especially the Massa who has to live in the woods. They have been pressured into changing their plans for this event, um, which was going to take place on the 19th of June. Uh, and you can under uh, you can imagine why they were pressured to changing their plans. And the third thing is the is the uh, issue of Nicole Hannah Jones, the uh, creator of the 1619 Project. Uh, she had been nominated or chosen by the faculty of uh, the University of North Carolina to 
hold the Endowed Knight Chair of History and Journalism, uh, which is an endowed chair that can include tenure. And the faculty had recommended that she be tenured in that position. The Board of Trustees said no. They said they would hire her on a five-year contract that could be reviewed at any time for tenure or termination. Um, The faculty uh, association is very much in favor of following the will of the faculty in making academic appointments and certainly uh, in arguing that she is uh, more than, uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones is more than qualified for this position and also by possible coincidence um, is a graduate of the University of North Carolina uh, in her undergraduate days. Um, The Academe blog quotes that chairman of the faculty who says honest reckoning with the past is precisely what we need at universities. Such reckoning can best occur when powerful interests are suspended, and that's the function of tenure. Writing for Essence Online, Malika Jahali quotes a Twitter comment by Jelani Cobb, writer and professor of journalism at Columbia University, who says essentially the same thing. The decision to deny tenure to Nicole Hannah-Jones is obscene. Tenure exists precisely to protect faculty from this kind of politicized decision-making. We need to compare the credentials of people who did get tenure this year. Uh, And a Pulitzer Prize and MacArthur winner did not. Uh, All over the country, adults are telling their children not to be afraid of ghosts. I was certainly told not to be afraid of ghosts by my parents, and I assume it's going on. But are we now trying to close off a crucially important examination of American history because we're afraid of ghosts? Uh, If that's what we're doing, trying to protect people from being upset because the past is scary and in some ways humiliating, then what is education for? History matters whether we try to ignore it or not. Best to teach it honestly and let the truth inform the future, even for children and tourists. Um, I'm, uh, I think we're talking about exploring this subject, subject further on the roundtable next month, so I'll let that happen. But, but all of these things are coming together at this moment, and I wanted to be sure that you, that you uh, were aware of that conjunction. Thanks for that important uh, s- set of uh, thoughts on that important topic, Ruth. I'm just briefly going to quote from an important article, but first noting that uh, uh, the insurrection, the Republican insurrection, uh, uh, certainly that came into being through Donald Trump, never really stopped. Uh, and that's evidenced by a host of things, including Senate Republicans blocking the January 6th insurrection uh, commission that was to be established, the ongoing voter suppression we've been talking about, the criminalizing of uh, protest and dissent in general in many Republican-controlled states, uh, setting up partisan systems to uh, overturn election results, just to name a few of those things. But there's another dimension of this insurrection that continues that's explored in a, uh, a Reuters special report titled Trump-inspired death threats are terrorizing election workers. And I'll just quote from it briefly. Uh, the, this uh, investigation begins by uh, citing this. Late on the night of April 24th, the wife of Georgia's top election official got a chilling text message. Quote, you and your family will be killed very slowly. A week earlier, Tricia Raffsenberger, wife of Secretary of State Brad Raffsenberger, had received another anonymous text. Quote, we plan for the death of you and your family every day. 
That followed an April 5th text warning. A family member, the texter told her, was going to have a very unfortunate incident. Those messages, which have uh, not been previously reported, illustrate the continuing barrage of threats and intimidation against election officials and their families months after former U.S. President Donald Trump's November election defeat. While reports of threats against Georgia officials emerged in the heated weeks after the voting, Reuters interviews with more than a dozen election workers and top officials and a review of disturbing texts, voicemails, and emails that they and their families received reveal the previously hidden breadth and severity of the menacing tactics. And there are many reports now of uh, nonpartisan election officials across the country who have received such intimidating uh, threats on their lives and their families' lives resigning. And uh, I'm sure people, if you haven't heard about this yet, um, you will soon. And it's uh, another dimension of this uh, continuing Republican insurrection. And I'll just leave the title of the article again with you so you can look up the details of this, which are harrowing. Uh, the title of this article from Reuters is titled Trump Inspired Death Threats Are Terrorizing Election Workers. So that's my two cents. And uh, mm. on that sour note, <laughs> Richard, it's all yours. <laughs> right. Well, I've got great news for you, folks. We're going to have a uh, uh, wonderful celebration when uh, the Republicans wake up one morning and uh, have had a great epiphany and decide to behave like human beings. Now, getting back to Luke's article and some of the things that spin off from there, I think one of the things he said was that, you know, it's encouraging that the progressive caucus, AOC, uh, Jamal Bowman, and the other freshmen, who were elected in uh, 2020, I guess, 2020 and 2018, you know, are, are now are in such numbers as to constitute kind of a caucus that does wield some legislative power and that could say, uh, we're not going to vote for your hollowed out symbolic gestures toward progressive legislation uh, if you continue to take out the key elements that uh, support the working class and the middle class. So that, that, that was interesting to me. It's also interesting that in the media, those uh, progressive legislators are now being characterized as spoilers. You know, look out for those progressives. They're going to spoil everything. The backstop that we have that they provide, really, is being denigrated and uh, reduced down to the notion of why don't they just uh, go along to get along? But one other thing I wanted to raise, and, and this could be for an exchange in, a, in the very brief time we have left, um, is that we're talking about my, minority rule and some of the more extreme aspects of it, which are pointing toward imminent violence, threats, and vicious attacks on the structures of, the, of democracy. But I don't know. I've lived through presidents, many, many presidents, and it strikes me that we've been living under minority rule since um, really the end of the 60s when uh, Johnson withdrew from the scene. And, um, you know, it's not been as 
blatant or as manifest as it is now. But let's face it, given the structure of the Senate, where there are two senators from each each state, no matter how tiny, and the manipulation of the media and the population using terms like the silent majority going back to Nixon and up on through the ages, even with Democratic presidents like Clinton and Obama, it is really minority rule that has prevailed. I mean, Clinton uh, overturned welfare, quote, as we know it, and he was giving in to pressure from the minority, and uh, none of those policies were popular with the majority. So I just thought, I just wanted to get your thoughts on that. This crisis we're in now is, if anything, to me, a continuation and a deepening of the crisis, but not necessarily a new species. Well, it seems to me that the whole Constitution is a product of minority rule. Uh, the two senators per state comes from accommodating the, the slave states as much as for anything else. And the uh, dropping of Jefferson's statement against slavery from the Declaration of Independence was also an effort to get a majority of people on board, a majority of representatives on board to get this thing passed. And so you accommodate those those outliers, uh, even... Um, well, there was something else, but I forgot what. <laughs> oh, yes. The minority also is that the notion that people who vote ought to be landowners was also an effort at minority, minority rule. So we've never been a, a true democracy, but we have been. Um, our, our system has been articulated by some enlightened members of those particular minorities or uh, majority members who understood how to work those enlightened um, minorities. But when we look at the Constitution, we're looking at a compromise document from the beginning. So what we have to hope for is to find an avenue of compromise that's going to also wind up with some enlightenment in it and not just the rule of the, of the um, death threat few. Well, I, I think you're right, Richard. And there was a, a study, and I, I, I've been trying to rack my brain to think about um, the the specifics of it, but there was a study conducted several years ago that talked about public opinion, uh, where you know Americans were generally on a whole range of topics, and they they this particular study went years back and found that po- public opinion, popular uh, the popular appeal of particular pieces of legislation, uh, were more often than not ignored. And the key ingredient, of course, was was big money and who's bankrolling the politicians. So, as you said, the the notion of having a democracy uh, is really tainted by the fact that uh, money talks here, and it always has. Um, I'll 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 do uh, some research here to figure out uh, where we can find this study because um, it was it was based in fact in terms of. Uh, uh, surveys of public opinion and what government's response was to those uh, those views basically ignored in more cases than not. Well, we're almost out of time, but Richard, anything else you want to say about that? Yeah, just to follow up, there's no doubt now that the polling data are showing that the 
all of Biden's progressive policies, proposals, I should say, are uh, very popular. Right. You know, getting 60 to 80 percent. We've got 10 seconds left, so I'm going to say goodbye for all of us and let folks know that they can uh, listen to another edition of Resistance Roundtable. 